It's spinning. John, I rolled a two. How much setting creation do you do in advance of playing? And how much do you do during the game itself? That is our question for today. Welcome to Roll for Topic, a roundtable discussion about topics related to running role-playing games. My name is Andy Rao. And I'm John Corey. And once again, John is filling in for Chris, who is still absent, being a new father of a healthy and happy young baby. Chris will be returning at some point in the near future, but in the meantime, John has graciously stepped up to the plate and is co-hosting. So, John. I love it. I might not let Chris come back, so. <laughs> yeah. You guys can uh, can battle it out in the role-playing combat system of your choice. That's, oh, there you go. That's a good idea. Can I recommend Rollmaster? It has very detailed, <laughs> yes. very detailed critical hit tables. And uh, he'll he'll quit because he won't want to make the character. So. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> yes. You know, John, you're one of the few people I know who has some Rollmaster history. Is that the case? Yes, it is the case. I have I've played Rollmaster several times. Those three-hour character creation sessions. Oh. Yes, yes. Three hours was it was a short one. <laughs> That's yeah. right. If you were really burning through it, with you had ten stats in that game. Not only ten stats, but you had you had like your actual stats and then your potential stats. Yes, and then derived stats. So you had to get your ten stats, derive other stats, and then there was potential stats. And and then if you're a wizard, forget it. You had to find your spell tables, and it <laughs> was right. that was like eight hours. Then all of a sudden. Yeah, so you just had to trust that the game designers knew what they were doing because, yes, yes. it was scary. Yes. Uh, so, John, uh, before we jump into our topic, I understand that you have dipped your toes into the scary world of running <laughs> role-playing games over the internet. Is that true? Yes, and if so, it's true. tell us how it went. It went great. So I have played in online games before. I've played an online campaign before, and I've played in you know various ways. I've played over Zoom. I've played uh, you know using just Roll Twenty. You know various combinations of things, uh, Discord audio. Um, so I, I think I was feeling a little overwhelmed about doing it myself. I ended up using Roll Twenty and Zoom. And it went great. And I think one of the big keys to success is I had, well, there were two things that I think made it successful. One was somebody had asked me, you know, I'm looking for something different. What do you think about Dungeon World? And I said, well, I love Dungeon World. I'll run a game for you. So I ran my Dungeon World Mad Libs game, which is a Dungeon World one shot. And I have done that a dozen times at conventions or whatnot. So I was very comfortable with the game I was running. I was very familiar with it. So I was in my element there. And then I ended up with um, four great players who were into the idea of improving with me because it was kind of like an improvisational style game. So sometimes you run into players who, like, you ask them a question like, you know, what does is, what is your spell look like when you cast it? Or uh, what does this castle look like? Or, you know, you, you give them opportunities to create and they don't, that's not what they're here to do. But all of the players in my game really wanted to do that. Had a great time. They were naming NPCs without any prompting, and just it was it was great. Um, so I think I'm ready to resume my campaign, and I think I will use Roll Twenty and Zoom. Um, okay. I think Zoom is really important to me because I need to see people to game with them. Right. I'm a very visual person, and I think table management is something I'm good at, and I can't do it without seeing people. So I know people do it audio only. I don't think I could do that. I have a couple questions. First yeah. of all, I. I have heard in numerous different contexts about your kind of famous uh, Mad Libs Dungeon World game that you have run in many conventions and stuff. Is that right? 
Yes. Can you explain what exactly that is? What's a Mad Libs version of Dungeon World? I got the idea from a website, this website, RPG Alchemy, and I'll send you the link for the show notes. But what it is, is there are, you you have a sentence, right? And you are, you're filling in the blanks on the sentence. And the sentence is constructed to be sort of a basic adventure plot. Okay. So what I do is I have these six cards that I cut out. And each of them has a, an intro phrase and then a series of choices on them. So the first one says, we are dot, dot, dot. And then the choices are exploring an ancient ruin on the site of an b- ancient battlefield. You know, and there's like six choices. And then the next one is, and we are seeking. And then it says, you know, um, a wondrous treasure, uh, an unholy portal, uh, you know, something. And then mm-hmm. the third one is, um, we are here to, uh, you know, close the unholy portal. And then the last two are, and it's guarded by blank and blank so i hand these out to the players and they all make a selection so i don't let them write in just anything they want but they they select from these multiple choice things and then we make the sentence so it'll say we are uh seeking a floating castle which lies on the edge of the fey realms we are here to close an unholy portal which is guarded by twisted abominations and a fallen angel so Mm. that was what that's what we came up with last night so then I go and I say, okay, so tell me about this castle. Where is it? And one of my players said, well, it used to be an elvish castle, but but there was a magical accident and it, it exploded out of the middle of an elvish city and it's been floating for 100 years across yeah. the world. You know, That's so I had, I had players who were willing to contribute that stuff. So I go around and ask more questions like, why are you here? Um, who sent you here? What do you, you know, and we sort of come up with the adventure that way. And then we play through it. It actually probably takes an hour to get to the point where we're actually playing the game because we're creating characters and then creating the bonds and then i'm asking these intro questions and then we we've cobbled together this adventure that we then play to and play through in like an hour and a half or two hours i'm sometimes a little surprised that in no iteration of dungeons and dragons has Mm -hmm. there been has there been any guidance towards sort of ad-libbing up a scenario or adventure like that yeah. Could you do this for D&D if you if someone said I want you to run D&D, would you do this style of uh, adventure creation with them or is the are the rules I, I of D&D would. such that it doesn't work? Uh, I think there's a couple advantages that that Dungeon World has in that it does not scale like D&D does. So you don't have to worry about challenge levels and that kind of thing, right? Hmm. There's sort of three three or four levels of creature, right? There's a minion, a, a regular, a boss and a big boss, right? So you can you can just swap out and say, well, the, the you know the big boss does one d twelve of damage. It has about twenty five hit points and can do something special. So you can add that to a game on the fly. I think you could do it with D anD. think it is D anD. d is not perfectly set for that because I think you need to do more prep- preparation for your encounters and your statistics. I think that's sure. the one thing that that is a barrier to that kind of thing. I also think character creation takes lo- a little longer in D anD. d because in Dungeon World, it's just kind of fill in the blanks. And a lot of the things that people do for character creation in D&D, like come up with a backstory or sort of an image for their character, that's all just fill in the blanks on Dungeon World, right? It even has a spot for what's your look. It even suggests names, right? Uh, for what's your character's name that you can just fill in. So I think that makes it easy to, to get going. And then the last part of character creation in Dungeon World is this where you create bonds with the other characters. This is why it works well with strangers, because... Mm-hmm it forces them to create bonds that are not always friendly with each other. And I think that is a big part of the improvisation because it immediately sets a tone for the relationships in the party. Whereas in D&D, I think you're very much still worried about you as an individual and not your interaction with the party. And how's your game going? Are you still running a game online? 
Uh, since we last talked, I haven't run any new games. It's been a... It's funny, when I'm not running games or getting ready to run a game, I'm usually reading rule books and uh, thinking about games I could be running that I'm not. But the last <laughs> couple of weeks, I've been... Uh, I do have a Fate of Cthulhu game in the running with my wife and daughter. And so over the last week or two, I've been reading up, rereading just the Fate rules. And I have a couple of um, of the supplements released for the Fate Core line that oh, can kind of no. feed into the horror genre. And uh, actually, you know, I, um, I have really clicked with the version of Fate that yeah. is in the Fate of Cthulhu game. Um, they, and how is that different than regular fate it's one of those games that i think is right up my alley that i've never played so i'm super curious about this here's the thing it's it's not really different it's just more streamlined in the way that it's written and communicated so okay. there's this just for the listening audience there's there's fate core and it's a pretty hefty tome i, I want to say I it's several it, yeah. several hundred pages long and uh, I'll be totally honest with you. Um, as much as I appreciate Fate Core in the abstract, I've always really bounced off of that rule book for some reason. Agreed. Um, and they released a game called Fate of Cthulhu that can- contains a streamlined version of the Fate rules. And there's a there's a generic one of that too. There's like Fate. It's Fate Express or Fate Light or something. It's like a yeah. Well, they've released. Rulebook. I have that too. Yep, they've. This is in between that Fate Express. I forget the name. Accelerated. Of it. Fate yeah, Fate Accelerated. Accelerated, and what they call it is Fate Condensed, um, because ah. it's it's a midway point, and really it's the full Fate rules. They've dropped a couple of like I guess what you might call sort of like the edge case types of rules that aren't probably going to come up in most games. Mm-hmm. Mostly, I think it's just a nice feat of game writing. They've yeah. taken the same rules that they took 300 pages to describe in Fate Core, and they've rewritten it in 50 pages. And I think they've done that by trimming out a lot of the stuff that was mostly in there to anticipate like problems and questions and objections, if that makes sense. Right, like a 3.5 style rulebook, yeah. right, where you try to cover every scenario. And the result is... They get, you know, 95% of the stuff you're ever really going to need. They deliver that. And if you truly need that extra 5%, there's the Fate Core full rule book you can go investigate. But really, I don't know that I would really recommend anyone not start with the condensed rules, which are, I think they're free. You can go grab them for free in PDF format, at least. But uh, okay. anyway, I don't mean to wax quite so eloquently about this, but... I have found myself getting really enchanted by Fate Condensed and by Fate of Cthulhu. And I feel like it's clicked for me in a way that Fate Core has not really clicked to date. I should try it out because I I look at Fate Core and I say, I should love this game. And and I think you said it perfectly. I bounce off the rulebook. I pick up this thing and I'm like, I just can't. You know, so I'll check it out. That sounds really good. It did help. I mean, this is some good advice, no matter what system you're thinking of getting into. It did also help that about the same time, I made a point of going out and finding some actual play podcasts of people running different uh, fate rules. And I'm not the hugest actual play fan of listening to actual plays, but it did give me a really good help me understand how a typical game is actually going to play out, which, again, not bagging on the fate core rules. But I think there is it is a special talent to be able to write a role playing game that really addresses the stuff that you need to know to actually play. Yeah, that's an interesting point. Uh, just two quick things about that. One is I think looking for actual plays is a great idea whenever I run something new. You know, like when I have kids on bikes or 10 candles or 
Mothership, which are the sort of new games I learned this year. I listened to actual plays of all of those, and it really helped me sort of grasp the the rough nature of the game. It's made me think about how many when you, when you look at a game like Dungeons and Dragons or Pathfinder or any of the other these other games that stretch into the hundreds of pages. And I yep. love me a good five hundred page rule book, but yep. uh, there's so much stuff in there that does not come up in play much. You know, like. There are these rules I read in every single game book I have about drowning and suffocating and and how far can you jump and things like that. And I have no doubt that there are games where that comes up and it's useful to have those rules. But I wonder what would happen if, you know, you sat down to play with you had a big list of every rule you could put in the book and you just circled the ones that actually came up in a game you played in the last year. I think that yeah. you would wind up with like a very trimmed down list from what you get in most rule books these days. I think that's a great point. And I wonder if, if Fate Core was the victim of, of habit, right? People expect to buy a big fat rule book. So if you don't if you don't give them one, they don't feel they're getting their your their money's worth. You know, even yep. the Dungeon World rule book, which I have next to me, is three hundred pages, but the vast majority of this book is monsters, right? Yeah, and how to and how to run the campaign like like only half the book is what you need to play the game. I think that there's an expectation about size, and I and I think that's starting to change. I like a thinner, tighter rule book. Yeah, yeah. it sounds to me like Fate Condensed is two more editorial passes of Fate Core. That's with what it a feels like. Different intention. Yeah. Yeah, and so yeah, I just I definitely want to uh, don't take this as criticism of Fate Core, which I think is a solid system. Um, but I think that uh, Evil Hat really, really figured it out with uh, Fate Condensed. So if you're listening right. and if you're curious what we're talking about, go check it out. It is time. We've been... We've been talking so long. Why don't I read it again? Yes. Why don't you revisit the topic that we're supposed to be discussing today? How much setting creation do you do in advance of playing? And how much do you do during the game itself? I'm Since you rolled, I think it'd be interesting to hear you start with this, Andy, and um, tell us sort of where you come from uh, on this. Absolutely. So I have journeyed from one end of this spectrum to the other over the years in which I've been running games. Yes. I started running games with settings that were very much fleshed out and set in stone before the player characters even started their adventuring careers in it. And I'm talking mostly about Middle Earth, but we mm -hmm. brought the same sensibility with us when we played Dungeons and Dragons set in the Forgotten Realms or the Spelljammer universe or whatever. Uh, when I when I in the first decade of oh yeah it's wonderful isn't it my first decade <laughs> of running stuff I very much started with a setting a big setting uh, and usually it was one that was published for me that I would you know I would basically study study up on the setting before running a game it was important to me and to my players that the game we were running fit into the into the contours of whatever that setting was. Into the universe. So if you're playing in Middle-earth, you have to choose when you're playing because you need to know if the ring has been destroyed yet or not. You need to know all those Precisely. kind of historical markers that identify that setting and its, and its landmarks as well. Exactly. And we can't, uh, we can't be adventuring in this place because it hasn't been built yet or it was destroyed 500 years earlier before the PCs came along, that sort of thing. Right. So then that's where I started. And it, that probably is connected to my love of the those big fantasy literature epics like Tolkien and his mm -hmm. many imitators that yeah. also seem to start with the, a big vision for the world. 
these days, uh, partly as a practical reality of gaming with busy adults, but also right. just as a shift in my own interest and temperament. I honestly go give very, very little thought to the setting beyond the genre tropes that are found in it, if that makes sense. Yes, it so does. So I don't have usually a detailed map of the world. I don't know which kingdoms are at war, that sort of thing. I might, I might have a rough sketch of the area, but really these days I like to zero in on the very specific area that the PCs are likely to play around in and influence in the course of the actual game we're going to play. Right. And I don't invest much energy into thinking outside if it's something the PCs are not likely to really meaningfully interact with. I don't right. give it any thought. I, uh, sorry to uh, ramble there, but that's my big answer no, no, to your good. question. How would you answer the same question? I have come and gone on this in several different ways, and it sort of def depends on what I've encountered last. So so I took a break from role-playing and got back into it in the late 90s. And when I, I started the campaign, the game was the game I had played back in the 80s. It was called Dragon Quest. Actually, I think the very first thing I ran was Rollmaster. Nice. And then I decided to switch it to Dragon Quest. Sir, I salute uh, you. Was Rollmaster just not realistic enough? You had to get more detail. Yeah, yeah. It was just it was kind of it was kind of fake. No, um, <laughs> yeah. uh, no. I just we decided to switch because I had lo this love of this game, um, uh, Dragon Quest, from back in the day, and we played that campaign for a while. It eventually evolved into a three point five game that I stopped running. Somebody else was running it, but but that first piece, the first thing I did was sort of draw a map of the world, right, and decide what the the world was like at a macro level and then zoomed in i actually used a dnd adventure uh, it was one of the last first edition adventures it was n5 is the number it was called okay. under illifarn and i i used it as setting material because it had a it had a small town in it and it had uh you know an elven glade and uh you know just all the things you need for a basic fantasy world mm -hmm. for a bunch of mercenaries to get together uh, so then what that 3.5 game was based on a setting i didn't run it but it was based on the scarn setting which was a uh, kind of wild setting i can't remember who published it from from the late 90s it sounds really uh, familiar but i can't think of uh i can't think of what that is but carry on the two most recent campaigns i've run have been a mixed bag there was a, a dungeon world actual campaign i ran which i started using this sort of mad lib system but then just evolved that into a, a campaign so as things happened i added parts to the world or the players added parts to the world so i didn't do any prep at all and we just added parts here and there and what that led to was a really fun game that everybody had a lot of ownership in, but it was sort of very generic fantasy world, right? There was a, there was nothing that I would say was a super inventive thing here, and you know what? That was okay. You don't need to have some crazy derivation from the standard fantasy setting to be successful. But then, my, my current campaign, I actually just took a setting. It's from uh, Keith Baker's Phoenix Dawn Command. Mm-hmm. Uh, it has a very specific setting that I love. And actually, the mechanics of the game were a non-starter for so many people I tried to introduce the game to. I've actually just basically converted it to Dungeon World. Hmm. So I'm playing a Dungeon World, but using this setting. But I still let players make up stuff. The setting is rough. You know, I, <laughs> in, the, in our last session before we went on a, a little hiatus... They encountered this place. It was called Halfsbridge, and and the no, it's like this giant ancient bridge. Nobody knows 
where it came from, but it extends like a half mile into the air and then just stops. And the hmm. the nobles live on the top of the bridge, and they were going to go there. And they're like, "Is there like a seedy underbelly town under the bridge?" <laughs> I'm like, "There is now." You of know, course like, there is. Yeah. <laughs> how could there not be? I don't know why I didn't think of it, but yes, yeah. there is. Um, and so, uh, you know, I love having that setting because I think the the structure of the world in Phoenix Dawn Command is so cool. But I don't fill in all those details. The map is pretty blank, and it lets people come in and insert the things that, that they think are valuable. Yeah. Um, because what I'm not interested in doing at this point is coming up with, I think like you said, like big countries and their politics and pantheons of gods and, and all of those kind of things, I think interest me way less than they used to. Yeah. And, and I think setting information for me now is some basic geography and just NPCs and their motivations. I think we think of NPCs as something else, but I think they're actually part of the setting. So NPCs, how they interact and how they're going to interact with the characters are sort of more important for me to come up with these days than where the lake is in the in this mountain vale. You yeah. know what I mean? Yep. Yeah. Have you ever run a game that was in a set-in-stone setting, like, say, Star Wars or something like that, where you did... Yeah. It was important to navigate within the to to color inside the lines. Yes, I have run a Star Wars game, and I played in a Star Wars game, and I didn't enjoy it as much because when it's that prescribed, I sometimes feel like there's not a lot of space to play in. It sort of mm-hmm. depends. Star Wars is a big universe, so there. I think people play that game and they come up with a lot of fun things to do that aren't in any of the movies. Yep. But that setting, I didn't enjoy playing in that setting as much as a sort of more made-up setting. I think, like, if you were to compare it to, say, Robin Law's Ash and Stars, like, I'd rather play in that. Because though it's a prescribed setting, it at least is fresh, which I think is part of the appeal for me. Because the other part, the other way, I think we talked about this in a previous episode, but the other way that works is discovering. So there's a joy in in discovering the the Tower of Amansul in your Middle-Earth game, right? And that's kind of fun. But there's also kind of like, well, then that sets specific rules about what that encounter is like that are very limiting. So, you know, I think I've gone from one side of that to the other over time. This is a big topic, so you'll, I beg your pardon if I sort of drift around within it a bit. No, no, that's good. Here's something I see in a lot of uh, role-playing games that have established settings where the expectation is that you're playing within the setting. So your Star Wars is basically. Right. Uh, I always see lots of kind of canonical stuff statted up and detailed. Yes. I mean, you would not stat that stuff up if you if the intent were not for the players to engage with it. So using Star Wars as our example... You open a Star Wars role-playing book, you have stats for Luke Skywalker in there and Darth Vader and that sort of thing. But in my personal games and in my my experience of interacting with other gamers, I don't know anyone who doesn't usually run with those settings off in their own direction. I don't know anyone who has met Luke Skywalker or battled Darth Vader in Star Wars games. So I feel often, even with these very defined settings... I think just an awful lot of gamers just have this instinctive need to carve out their own space within it. Yeah, you know, this is always a struggle. And, um, you know, I, I was thinking of an example. I, I ran a game of Stormbringer, which is the Elric role-playing game. It's, various, it's been called Stormbringer and Elric and mm-hmm. uh, different things uh, a long time ago. So maybe my memory is poor. But the big thing for me with that was, like, they stat up Elric, like you say. But I think if you run into Elric, it overshadows your characters. I remember in the James Bond role-playing game, which stats up James Bond and 
and Miss Money Penny and Holly Goodnight and and uh, uh, Teehee and all the all the James Bond Jaws, yeah. all the James Bond villains and characters. And you know, to run into James Bond villain, villains is weird. But additionally, the the book says, look, if your characters get in over their heads, just have Bond come in and save them, (laughs) right? Uh, which just sounds like the least fun play experience I can think of, right? Because yes. you're you're these you're these characters who are trying to make their way in MI six, and uh, and here comes James Bond uh, ruining all, stealing all your thunder. So I, I actually think you're right. I think people avoid, you know, the really strong things, but they they really want to play in those worlds at the same time. So it's a it's a balance. Yeah. There was a game, the Indiana Jones role playing game. Do you remember this one? I've never played it, but I am I am familiar with it. Yeah. Well, the the rule of it is you don't make your own character; you just pick one. So so somebody's indie, and everybody okay. else is like short round, <laughs> right? So <laughs> I mean, how much fun is that, right? Uh, you know. Uh, so I don't know. Having too strong a setting is something I guess I've avoided. Though you know, in my latest campaign, I have a really specific setting. I think the difference with that is it's not canonical. It's still new to the players. Yeah. Even if I've read the setting a couple of times. And I think that is a big difference between that and playing in, say, Faroon or Star Wars or The Forgotten Realms. What are some just basic traits of a setting that gets your interest? The reason I find the setting that I've chosen interesting is because it has a plot built in. It's not just an, an almanac of the world. Yeah. It says, have adventures here. It says, here's an almanac of the world. And boy, is this world in trouble because all this stuff is going on. And you've been recruited to help fight this thing. The world really needs your help. Um, so the setting is, you know, the characters are immediately drawn into the setting because of things in a desperate situation, right? So, so I don't like settings like, like the Forgotten Realms, for example. When when you used to look at that setting or Greyhawk, it was it was cool. I enjoyed reading them, but it was just an almanac. And I, you know, where do you start? And then that's what the modules were for, right? If you play in the Forgotten Realms and then you'd start it under Ilan Farn, and that would be your entry. So so that was good. But just that sort of almanac style doesn't really interest me. And I yeah. think the other big thing is it has some sort of unique trait to it. It doesn't have to be completely different. Though, again, I'd, I'd say Phoenix Dawn Command is pretty unique because it, it eschews sort of the standard fantasy races and that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. It has to have something slightly different. Like, I enjoyed, I ran a, a Dragon Age RPG. I enjoyed that game. And I just remember thinking, oh, these are a lot of things I expect, except the elves are different, right? The elves mm-hmm. are sort of grungy, and the city elves kind of are, are uh, beggars. And, and that having that difference between the standard fantasy tropes creates a lot of interest for me. Yeah. If it's just straight up elves, dwarves, and orcs, I may be less interested than something that mixes it up a little bit. I have over the years read a large number of what you might call those almanac style setting guides, right? To various yeah, things. I, I still love to read them. Don't get yep. me wrong. <laughs> oh, they're wonderful to read. But what I found myself um, maybe 10 or 15 years ago is when I started to articulate this reaction I was having to these settings is I would read a great setting like um, the setting of Eclipse Phase as a specific example. Mm-hmm. Uh, before that, uh, Transhuman Space, I had all these books for that line. And the settings are amazing. It was interesting to read the books. But the settings were so complete and so well fleshed out that I didn't know what I what you would do in the setting. I mean, right. when the... You often see this sort of um, this pitch from role playing games that you can be anything you want, you can do right. anything, uh, anything you can imagine, you can do in this setting. That right. used to sound very exciting to me, but nowadays when I hear that, a little yellow flag goes off because these days I want to know what's the story we're going to tell, what are we going to do, and then 
I would rather start with that. What's the experience I want us to have? And then build a setting that kind of supports that rather than start with a wonderfully defined setting and then look around in it for a space that fits the story. Try to carve out a space in it that fits the experience I want to have. Does that make sense? That makes complete sense. And and when you say that, what my mind immediately went to, I think that's great. And and what my mind immediately went to was the gumshoe games from Pelgrane Press. Because what they do is they do offer fairly complete settings, like, say, Knights Black Agents, for example. Mm-hmm. Right? Here's a setting. The world is a scary place. Um, it's full of vampires. But here's the game. At the beginning of the game, you guys find out you're spies, you find out that there are vampires, and the vampires are part of the espionage community, and you immediately get burned and you're on the run. Go. Right? Like, so is that the experience you want to have? Or yeah. Ash and Stars is you're investigators. You know, space has been closed off for a long time. Now it's opened up. You're investigators with a particular unit. You need these kind of people in your unit. Go. So I, I think. I think we're agreeing here in that I like a setting that gives the character something specific to do. Because I think, especially in modern role-playing, I think saying you can do anything you want is kind of a little a little bit of a cheat. That's, I think, one of the reasons I like these uh, Powered by the Apocalypse games, because the roles are very specific. And yeah. the design of the game is in, you know, in Monster of the Week, you are monster hunters. You're not going in there to be the monsters. You're not going in there to be news reporters. You are the people hunting the monsters. And the setting is whatever kind of monsters you want to hunt. So I'm agreeing with you 100%, I think. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned the Powered by the Apocalypse games, because I honestly avoided uh, games of that ilk for longer than I should have, because I saw that the story was pretty well-defined, and I'm used to, like, give me the almanac, and I'll come up with my own story to fit within it. And so when I would see, you know, Apocalypse World, uh, a more recent, some of the more recent variants, I would think, well, what if I don't want to play that specific scenario? What if I don't want to play in that, that particular story? But right. having read like Blades of the Dark and Band of Blades and uh, Tachyon Squadron for the Fate system, these games that um, they're probably better described as just like campaigns, yeah, not settings. And I guess the downside is, yes, when you pick up Band of Blades, you're going to have a lot of work to do if you don't want to run with the Built the campaign that it clearly is assuming that you're going to do. There was a time in my life where that downside would have been too much. But these days, right. I see that less as a downside and more as a time and energy saving Yeah, <laughs> and resource. I think... Um... I think it goes back to, I was just thinking of another Powered by the Apocalypse game, because there's Dungeon World, which is sort of close to D&D in the sense that you still have to make your own adventures, though it gives you a method for doing so, which takes the pressure off. But another game I picked up, and I haven't had a chance to play, um, it's called The Sword, The Crown, and The Unspeakable Power. It's a Powered by the Apocalypse game. It has playbooks, it has moves, but it's very specifically designed to be like Game of Thrones, right? There's a sword, mm. there's, there's a goal, the crown, and then there's some unspeakable power. So the unspeakable power in Game of Thrones is the dragons, right? So who controls that power? So that kind of idea where you can jump into a genre simply by the rule set that you pick, right? Because it'll be familiar to you if you play Dungeon World, but it's not the same, and the devil's in the details. So, like you're saying, it's a campaign and a style of game you're you're buying into when you pick it up. I have another one called Ruma, which is about uh, adventuring as Roman legionnaires in a world that is fantastic. It's, it's grounded in the Roman world, but it's hmm. fantastic as well. Um, so I love that you... So I love that the game's a game that now has those kind of intentions behind it. 
So you just mentioned uh, a Roman-inspired setting. Have you run many games that are set in a fairly realistic historical setting? No, I tend to. What I enjoy about fantasy literature and science fiction are the more fantastic, unexplainable aspects about it. So I like when they're grounded in reality, but have a fantastic twist to them. So I yeah. don't run deeply historical games. That's not that's not super entertaining for me. Yeah. I think the most historical game I've run is Call of Cthulhu, you know, set in the 1920s. Yes. There are some campaigns I would like to run one day or that I sort of daydream about running that are set in specific time periods in history. Right. Um, you know, I would love to run, you know, a game set in ancient Rome or the late Roman Empire or and some other specific time periods, but talk about settings that are very fleshed out and very defined that's yes. a that's one where the pressure i would feel to do my homework in advance is off-putting to me uh that sounds like a lot of work so um, yes it but. does and i think the other thing i would want to um say about that is if the set i think i like a game now i have noticed and you know people may disagree with me but i don't i think the point of a lot of these games where the setting isn't fully fleshed out now is that people are more invested in a game where they are developing part of it hmm. right so if the whole thing spelled out what you're really hoping is that everybody's as excited about the setting as you are and that can happen right star wars is the best example star wars is fun i you know I want to play a character like Han Solo. I want to play a young Jedi who's just learning how to do it. I want to do all these different things. Well, that that is people being excited about the setting. But in the, for example, this Phoenix Dawn Command game, I'm excited about the setting. But nobody else has read this setting. So rather than try to get them to be excited about the things I'm excited about, I think it's important to let them introduce parts of the setting so that they have buy into the game, yeah. um, which makes for more engaged players and a more fun game. So I think that's a huge part of saving part. One of the rules in, in Dungeon World is draw maps, but leave blanks, right? And I think that's super critical because you need to fill in things after the fact to get good player engagement. Yeah, and it sounds intimidating, you know, because you are you are leaving your setting wide open to go in directions you weren't expecting or anticipating, or maybe in directions you aren't initially super thrilled about, right? Right. But the flip side of it is that situation you just described. I've certainly been in the situation where I'm the GM. I've read the 400-page almanac of the ancient kingdoms of whatever. Nobody yeah. else at the table has. Nobody else at the table will. So I've got right. to communicate to them, not only feed them enough info that they can act believably within this setting, and I've also got to convey my enthusiasm for the setting. Right. And that's a big that's a big ask. I mean, think it about is. it. It's uh, when you have your players, you know, enthusiastically coming alongside you in building out the setting. It's right. just so much less work. It is. And I think there's a laziness to it. That is part of it for me. Right. Like like as you were saying, with an adult life, I don't have time to read the whole almanac and I don't have time to pick out the parts that are going to be in there. Like I was reading um, one of my I think we've talked about it before. One of my favorite games from AD&D was The Sinister Secret of Saltmarsh. I love that adventure. So. When Ghosts of Selmarsh came out, I picked it up because that's that's one of my favorites. And and it's not bad, right? It's a good adventure. But, you know, I just started reading about the politics. They've added a layer of complexity to the, the interactions of the yeah. NPCs and the politics of the town and the different factions in the region. And, like, I just wanted to go to sleep. That's not the part of the game <laughs> that, that I'm super interested in. So, yeah, I think you can give too much. Why do you think that, as we talk about this, whether we're talking about a middle earth level detailed setting or 
something you're throwing together on the fly with Dungeon World. Why do you think we start with maps? That is a great question. Um, I think it, we think I think because of the origins of the hobby, right? You know, I, I'm thinking that that maybe maps aren't the most important thing. But what if the people around you are the most important thing? This is a role playing game, and one of the keys to the game is interacting with people, whether they be NPCs or other players. So, what if the first thing you did? Because you're right, I start with maps. It doesn't matter the game. But I. But what if you played a game? There is a game like this. It's called Fiasco. It has no maps, and what you do is you define your character, and then you define the relationships in a prescribed manner with the people around you, and that is. That is the setting for the game. You're given a time, a uh, sort of genre, and then you're given then you're given your relationships, and then you role play for three hours without one map. Um, so I think that that's really interesting. What you said is that is that why do we start with maps? Is it because we already have? I don't know. What do you think? I don't know. You know, it's hard to. I suspect that it is, as you say, rooted in just how the hobby began and the and the things that were most inspirational to the people that gave birth to this hobby. So they were coming out of Lord of the Rings, they were coming out of yes. Moorcock, they were coming out of these places, and those are, I guess Moorcock not so much, but you know, Lord of the Rings is like the king of the map maps. Yeah. Uh, fantasy realms, right? And then everybody, every lesser, you know, fantasy writer who followed Tolkien modeled that you know they are all these books always the still first today page. brandon yeah. sanderson has maps in his books yeah you yeah. flip open and before you even get to the text of your book you're seeing a map um yep i i do sometimes wonder if our hobby had i know gygax was influenced by a lot of non-tolkien uh writers yeah. but yeah. i think tolkien's influence is pretty darn strong in D. and i do wonder if the influence of like conan and moorcock and maybe Narnia, some of those other places that are a little fuzzier when it yeah. comes to like the definition of the setting. I, yeah. I wonder if the hobby would look very different, if D&D &D would look very different, if it wasn't a map that was, you know, the starting point. Interesting. I think, I mean, I think there's a map of, for instance, Conan's setting, but when you read the stories, it feels very hazy. It's very hand-wavy. Yeah. yeah, it's like he's in this rough, it, it's basically like he's in, what feels like the old west or he's in what feels like lawrence of arabia or he's in what feels like you know the deep jungle exactly. but it's not like that beyond that it doesn't really matter yeah and those are when you think about for instance those conan stories those don't feel like the author saying what would happen if conan traveled to this country and this city on the map instead right. they feel like what would it be like if conan were suddenly a king for some reason or what yeah. if he were? What if you're in a, a city pirate? that's known? Yeah, or right. the, the known for thieves. It's the city of thieves. Yeah. Can you have a whole city of thieves? Who knows? Who cares? <laughs> but what a cool idea! Let's put Conan there, right? Yes. Yeah. Is there a fantasy setting? Please write in and tell me that does not have some sort of a thieves city. City. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. There is. Yeah, like Thieves World, for example, has a pretty strong thief element to it. <laughs> <laughs> there, you, there you go. Yeah. So here's a question. I have sort of a closing question for you. So with your dungeon world, you obviously do a lot of whipping up settings on the fly. Uh, mm -hmm. To what extent do you stick to the setting that you create, I guess? So if is the stuff that your characters came up with in your last dungeon world setting, is that permanent? Do you Are you going to go on and build on that for your next game? Yeah, because I think you need to. I think you need some place to start. So, you know, this was just a one shot, but this floating castle exists. They actually crashed it. Um, <laughs> of course they so, did. Of course they did. 
I think you need that to start. Now, permanent is, is maybe not the right word. It's the solid ground. But if somebody said to me, you know, I said I wanted to be from this town that was like this, and I think I've changed my mind, I would be totally open to that. So I think that I do not like to carve it in stone once it's said. I like to use it as inspiration to come up with new stuff to push the game forward. But I don't, in fact, I'm horrible at taking notes. I always have to say, remember that guy? Who's that guy? You know, I'm always asking my <laughs> <Yeah>. players, like, <laughs> back when you were in that one city, uh, it's a little embarrassing. But yeah, I'm not super, I'm not super dedicated to uh, defining it without flexibility. Have you, uh, I said that was the last question, but I was lying. <laughs> Are there any specific settings that you want to explore specifically through the medium of a role-playing game? There's, there's two games that I've really wanted to try and I've never played in two of my favorite worlds. One is Star Trek, mm. um, either the original or the next generation sort of Deep Space Nine time frame. Yep. I enjoy both of those very much, and I've never played in a game in them, and I think it's because I'm too worried about the amount of, of pre-existing history there. Though, yep. though the good news is, especially with Star Trek, like literally there's always something new to explore. <laughs> yes. so, yeah. uh, and the other one is Conan, because I don't know that it's the setting so much as the feel. Yeah. And I don't know that I've encountered a game as much as I've tried that quite gets it right. I mean, Conan is problematic in a number of ways, but there is this visceral sword and sorcery feel to it that that is unique like yes, i think is. there was a quote i think it was actually from stephen king who said conan's stories looks like howard is just fumbling over himself to get these stories out right like <laughs> yeah. they they're so propulsive yeah and so uh just intense i mean there are other stories that are intense and and i've seen them but there's just that was my sort of first encounter with those kind of stories so i would love to play in that sort of sword and sorcery world that is you know just all pulse pounding action all the time you know? yeah you know it's it's telling that there are so many games that aim for that but i'd be hard pressed to say i personally have seen a game that quite nails it now i have to yeah. say it is funny i think that um there's an official star trek role-playing game which i've played and it's very good, by the way. Um, oh, okay, I have I, it. Uh, somebody okay. sent it to me. Somebody's like, I have a copy. Anybody want it? I'm like, I'll take it, but I haven't had a chance to play it. it it's very good if you... It's, if your it's idea of Star Trek... isn't it? isn't it? Yes, it is. If okay. your idea... If what you want out of Star Trek is to kind of mirror the pacing of an episode of the TV show, um, I think it would be a great game to run it. I, and so if lots I were to, of talking. <laughs> if I were to run it, I would like lay it out as you know a season of the show, and right, you know, with with con with discrete episodes. But funnily, uh, amusingly, uh, I think they also published Conan. So uh, yes. I think you need to you need to give them you need to check them out. Uh, check out Modiphius. There is a one game I want to mention. Actually, I want to ask you the same question you asked me. But there's one other game. One of our in the Discord, somebody was talking about this. It's called Swords Without Master, and it's supposed yeah. to emulate Conan. I have not played it. I've read through the rules. I want to try it. Kyle Latino, I think, had tried it in an online game and said, it's okay, but I really want to try it face-to-face -face with other people interested in a sword and sorcery game to yeah. see what that's like. Um, so what about you? What's a setting that you haven't played that you really want to? Oh, yeah. Well, I think that for me, it's the, the couple of historical settings. Here's a... Mm -hmm a mixed historical fanta and fantastic setting. So I really, I, I studied it in school, so I've got this built-in bias. I, I really love the Byzantine Empire, and I uh -huh. love the city of Constantinople. And I've never run a game set there, 
Okay. Uh, but I would love to run a game set in either Rome uh, at towards the end of the Roman period or in Byzantium because those settings evoke in me that just feeling uh, of like the twilight of an empire. Right. You know, uh, with both of those, there's that wonderful pathos of uh, yeah. the end is is coming, but it's it's glorious and decadent right now. Um, and yeah. I would love to explore, especially the city of Constantinople, um, either on the brink of like uh, one of the crusade, like the Fourth Crusade, or maybe uh-huh. much further down in its history when when it, the writing was on the wall uh, for it. Um, I would love to explore that setting. And I that's a situation where I probably do have enough historical background with it that I could run it confidently. But right. I don't know how interested other I guess I've never really pitched this to to any groups. I don't know how interesting the city of Constantinople. Is. I think it would be fascinating because I think if you if you can pull the the fascinating sort of magical parts out, those could make an impression on somebody else. Yeah, and, and, and what it would have is have the impact of making you jazzed about running it, and the players yeah. would sense your enthusiasm. It's uh for what it's worth, it's the whole like Byzantine Empire is like an underserved setting. It, it feels like games. that, doesn't it? Yeah. Like even Mike Mike uh, Mike Duncan did did a two hundred and fifty episode podcast on the history of Rome, which ends with, and then the Eastern or then the Western Empire ended, and, <laughs> and the Byzantine Empire continued for a few hundred more years. The end, right? Oh man, <laughs> yeah, that's like my pet peeve right there. Yeah, they've. Um, I I think I own most of the role playing books set in Constantinople and nice. they are a a scattered and eclectic bunch there's like a source book for vampire the dark ages set in Constantinople nice. there's an Ars Magica uh book uh set in the Byzantine Empire there's a few there's like a random unknown armies scenario set in Constantinople there's this, it's this weird weird scattering of uh, of books but maybe maybe it's my maybe it's my job to to write this as an adventure setting well, just to bring it all together, Michael Moorcock's sort of latest novels are a four-novel series about Byzantium and the Byzantine Empire. So, are you serious? Yes, I am. I what, don't know if uh, you can even find them. What are they? What are the names? I can't remember off the top of my head. Okay, um, but yeah, look them up. Look up Michael Moorcock Byzantium and and maybe it's something different. This is just my recollection. I have not yep. read them, but it seems like something you should check out based on okay. our, all of our previous conversations. Oh my goodness, I will. I have to say, um, I talk up Moorcock an awful lot in the show, and I love Elric Dearly, but my last couple of Moorcock novels I've read, some of his more recent stuff, have left me a little flat. Yeah. And uh, see, I recently read one, I think it was called The Dream Thief's Daughter. And yes. it was uh, following a more, one of uh, Elric's incarnations uh, set. Uh-huh. And I knew that the end was coming for me and my relationship with Moorcock's work when he stuck Elric and Hitler in the same room and <laughs> Elric didn't kill Hitler. Like some contrivance happened. And I was, all, all I ever wanted from Elric was for him to wade into Hitler's council room and pull out uh, pull out that sword of his. And, yeah. Oh, that sounds really good. Yeah. yeah. And I, you know, the older, the older novels are a bit of a struggle too. They're a bit damsel and distressy and, you know, yeah. like a lot of old fantasy, they, they have a lot of those same problems, but for sure. I'm curious to see what his Byzantium books are like. So yes, well, yeah. I, I mean, having just sneered at Mr. Moorcock's recent work, I am also <laughs> going, as soon as we're done pod, uh, podcasting here, I, I'm going to rush and Google 
and see if I can get those at the local library. So uh, yeah, I'll there you go. All right. All well, right. we've been awesome. going on. We're coming on, uh, coming up on an hour. Um, and all right, I've certainly enjoyed this conversation, John. But we should yeah, bring it to a close. Do you have any? Do you have any parting shots for GMs that are um, are getting ready to set up a game and and thinking these big questions about what's the setting going to be? I think you said it earlier, and I'll just repeat your wisdom, which was build enough of the setting to get started, and that is what'll help you the most. And build a setting that you are yourself are interested in, because your enthusiasm for the setting has to come through. Uh, if yes. you're running a setting. If you don't like vampires and, and your friends talk you into running the Curse of Strahd, right, nobody's going to have any fun. So yeah. so pick a setting that engages you, that gives you, and start with the, just the amount you need to get the game going. That is uh, fantastic advice, yeah. And uh, saves your, not only will it uh, ensure a more fun game, but it'll just do the work you need to do to have the experience you want and don't do extra unless you genuinely derive joy from doing that. So Exactly, exactly. All right, well, we're going to wrap it up here. Uh, this has been Roll for Topic. I have been Andy Rao. And I've been John Corey. And uh, soon Chris will be rejoining us, but not quite yet. So we'll leave you in suspense. And in the <laughs> meantime, happy gaming, everybody. And remember, as Chris would undoubtedly say, if your players are having fun, you are a great GM. Awesome. Still miss you, Chris. <laughs> Come back soon. <laughs>